Hey there, and welcome back to the Will and Rob Show, uh, a podcast of Ministry to State. My name is Robert. I am a ministry associate with Ministry to State. I am here with my colleague and very good friend, Will Stockdale, also a ministry associate uh, with Ministry to State. Uh, it has been a wild uh, couple of weeks with the um, events going on across our country. Uh, we have a lot of stuff we want to talk to. Will actually experienced some of it firsthand, which we'll get into uh, here in just a little bit. But Will, how are you doing? What's, what's going on with you? Well, I survived the Lincoln Park weekend. Yeah. Uh, there was the, it was covered, I think, I know the Wall Street Journal ran multiple articles on it, and there was definitely some Twitter chatter about it, but there was a, a lot of a lot of gathering around the emancipation statue. So that was kind of the most intriguing portion of my weekend uh, that happened. And, you know, we were talking earlier, the, the Supreme Court court decision today. So a lot, a lot is rolling out. A lot is happening. A lot's being discussed. Yeah. Well, let's, so let's go back to that. So Lincoln Park, that's your backyard, basically. Yeah. Um, so run us through what was going on for those, for folks who don't know. Um, I think if you were in DC, if you live in DC, this was sort of like the big news, uh, because it's just so local. Probably people saw a lot of it, of, of what's going on, but maybe don't know the full context. It's sort of something they're looking at from the outside in. So kind of give us, what was it like being on the ground in Lincoln park, uh, for those, those events? Yeah. Well, Initially, there was supposed to be a rally on Thursday evening, and then it was moved to Friday evening. Starting on Thursday, though, the park police came out, uh, and then they had hired or contracted uh, a company to come and put up a eight to ten foot tall metal fence that was going to surround the statue um, to create a perimeter so that people couldn't actually get to it. So that went up on Thursday. And then on Friday, uh, starting around six o'clock, there was, I guess you call a rally that was happening. And there was uh, the gentleman who had created a petition to have it move. There was another gentleman who had kind of been the, the, the organizer for the rally. There was a neighbor uh, gentleman who was there. There was someone from the Hill Rag newspaper who was there, which was really interesting at one point how he got involved into the situation. And then there was a woman who was an adjunct professor of art at Howard University. And then there was another neighbor who was there. And what they did was they started out by this, this one man who was kind of the organizer. He spoke and said, everyone's going to get to, we're going to have these, this kind of panel using the megaphone, explain why we want it removed. And there was just some general sentiment of, you know, this statue is oppressive. This one woman said, I live nearby and I don't, ever want to have my daughter have to walk through the park. So we walk around the park so that she doesn't have to see this statue. And if you haven't seen the statue, you haven't seen pictures of it, I guess that that should be explained. The statue is of Abraham Lincoln and he is standing in his right hand. He has a document that's curled up. It might be the Emancipation Proclamation that seems to make sense. And there's a, there's a um, column that's about three feet high that comes in the middle of his waist and his hand with the Emancipation Proclamation is resting on it. And he has his left hand extended forward. And then there is a a recently freed slaves whose manacles have been broken and who uh, was, is on his knees and is rising up with Abraham Lincoln's hand stretched out over it. And the thought is that this looks um, 
paternal, I think would be the language people would use. And I would say, truthfully, when I, ever since I first moved here, I thought I'm surprised that this statue hasn't caused more controversy because it does look a little paternal. I, I don't know if it's totally a bad statue. I don't think that, um, but it, it is an interesting, it is an interesting way the statue is set up. So anyways, I just walked around, listened to a bunch of people. It quickly descended into chaos though, which was actually really, um, I want to say kind of dis discouraging, mostly because I was hopeful for there to be more. There was a lack of dialogue. So the point was, hey, come up, stand on this X here, and you can ask your questions and speak. Well, it turned out that you could ask your questions and speak so long as you fell in line with the reason for the gathering. If you had a counterpoint or a different point, there was no place for you to belong. And you could, you could get sh uh, shouted down. That was kind of the the sentiment that was there. So I had some questions about it. So the folks that were there, was, was it predominantly um, younger, older? Were there any, uh, I guess the arguments coming from uh, the African-American community to keep it up? What, what were some of the nuances that maybe you saw that you didn't expect? Um, or that might've been a, might've been a surprise. Yeah. So as for the demographics, I mean, it was pretty varied. You had everywhere from people in their sixties to younger people, white, black were there. One of the guys on the panel was actually Indian, I believe. So he, he had his points that he was making and I didn't really hear anybody who was actually for keeping up the statue. Uh, I think the closest someone would come would say, Hey, let's actually have a discussion on why the statue should be torn down. One of the things that one of the gentlemen said who was up on the panel was, Hey, tearing down the statue doesn't change anything. Um, tearing down doesn't change. What we have to look for is an opportunity to better people's lives. And so how does that actually get accomplished? Not just destruction, but creativity as well. And that was a, that was a, an interesting point. Um, he was the most thoughtful, uh, the person who expressed that was, I think, one of the most thoughtful people up there. I think what I mentioned a second ago, part of the reason it was discouraging, it was that there was no like eloquent dialogue, like, like speech. I was hoping for some, you know, maybe even a five minute piece of oratory for why it should go down. Instead, you would get these like little bursts where someone would tell a story and they'd be like, and I don't want for anyone to have to face this kind of oppression or something like that. And then everyone would start cheering. And I was like, you know, that really didn't explain to me why it should go down. In fact, the Howard University history professor, I was hoping that she was going to explain why the statue was offensive from an artistic standpoint. Like, here's what this posture symbolizes. Here is the sculptor who did this. Here's what we know about him. Here's what we know about the way it's designed and the reasons we should have it removed. I was like, oh, that would be great. Like, that would actually be really helpful for me if I could hear why this is bad. And that wasn't her argument at all. Her argument was simply that the people who put the statue up don't follow the quote unquote traditions of putting in a public statue that we follow today, which I thought was really amusing. Cause I'm like, well, what tradition are you following exactly for where you put in statues other than what you deem appropriate? Yeah, that that's an interesting point just because um, one of the things that I was reading to sort of keep up what was going on was uh, reporting done by a guy named uh, Nick Rowan, who, uh, uh, writes for the examiner uh, and he uh, sort of uncovered or at least highlighted some some interesting points about the actual original construction of the statue that sort of makes for an interesting uh, narrative 
part of it being that it was partially at least paid for by freed slaves, um, that Frederick Douglass actually was present and spoke at the dedication of it. And that even the, the president uh, at the time, Ulysses S. Grant, being present at, at the dedication of the statue. So sort of like on paper, it, it's one of those statues that you would imagine no one would have a problem with, um, considering sort of its, its credentials and folks that back it up. But it's interesting now that it's under such intense scrutiny and what, what, you, what you mentioned about it not holding up to the standards that we hold now, I think is really revealing. It sort of reveals a new ethos, a new uh, uh, worldview, uh, if you will, about how we approach these, these matters. And it, I think it sort of is a good segue into sort of what I think we wanted to really discuss today, which is, you know, when we are watching these things going on, what's happening? How do we navigate these new currents? And I think one of the, the trends that, you know, much, much smarter people than us have highlighted for, for years, but I think something we wanted to sort of touch on today is, is sort of the, the notion that in our increasingly secularizing culture, uh, the ways that politics is replacing organized religion for, for a mass amount of people. If I were to sort of throw that out there, would you say that's, did you get any sort of like quasi-religious feeling at the, at the events? Are you seeing those sort of things happening in other events that you're watching or reading about in, in the news? Because this, this is not, the statue controversy obviously is not isolated to DC. This is happening all across the country, all different kinds of people. There have been statues of Lincoln that people have wanted to tear down. And then, you know, you go all the way to the, the extreme other side, right, of, of Jefferson Davis and Confederate leaders. Um, there's just a whole, whole mix of, of this going on. And when I look at it, it does feel quasi-religious. It feels like this is a religious experience for many people. What, what is your sense when you... No, I, I'm, I'm with you. And I would say, uh, did I experience any religious language like, overtones? N- not so much, no. But I think the language of justice is definitely a religious concept in so much as how do we have any idea of justice? Where do we get any idea of innate uh, value in people? So uh, yeah, at that, at that rally, there wasn't a particular amount of like explicit overt religious language. I think there's definitely a religious fervor for these kind of things. And in one sense, it's justified. Like, look, if this is statue turns out to be a symbol of oppression, then it needs to go. Like there's not that, that doesn't seem super arguable. The question is, I don't know if that's been decided yet. And I think there needs to be debate about it rather than some kind of dogmatic assertion as to what things are inherently. And, you know, I, I think to your point, uh, Cardinal Timothy Dolan wrote an op-ed earlier today in the Wall Street Journal. And one of the things that he talked about was he one of the church named after Peter was open and this woman sent him a letter and was like, you know, should we name a church after Peter? The guy was a coward and a traitor. And he kind of says, you know, that's kind of the point. Um, we are all sinners redeemed by God. And he just, he very thoughtfully kind of brings up the question in, in a helpful way of discussing what are and are, are not permissible boundaries for people that we have statues of. Cause there's certainly like silly tearing, like tearing down of Grant or even of, in St. Louis statues that have come down, statues of abolitionists, they're, they're, that is a blind Jacobin fervor that seems to be going on and not something that's thoughtful. Right. It does, it, in that sense, it feels sort of like, you know, we believe in this cause, 
we live in this town. This is the main statue that we have, you know, and that statue could be um, something as sort of noble as uh, I, I think it was a statue in Wisconsin where there's, there's a statue for women's suffrage that sort of it's lady progress. And it's, it's supposed to highlight like, look how far we've come as, as a state and as a country in um, recognizing voting rights for women. And that statue got torn down. And so in that sense, that feels sort of almost like a sacrament, right? Like this, this is something that we have to do to remind ourselves of like what we believe, but like things like that, right? Like that feels very religious, not, not something that is as deliberative as maybe political or community organizing in a way. Yeah. I think about um, Charles Taylor and the beginning of a secular age talks about marks of secularism. And one is of secular government and the idea of a government that's purely based on laws that's not rooted in divine right of kings, not, not having a national church, those sorts of things. And I mean, America is the first time in history where that has happened, where we have had this, this big beginning, this rise of secular governments that have taken root throughout the world as well. There's other replications of it that are happening, but there was never this idea that the state was to remain walled off from religion. And what we're seeing is that it can't. Yeah. It, it cannot exist without some kind of virtue. Traditionally, it was found in the Judeo-Christian norms and ethics. That's, that's the history. As we have moved away from that in other ways, there's been other things that have tried to replace it. But there is always going to be some kind of religious element that is guiding the political conversations that we have. And that's going to come out in a lot of ways in morality. I think of what you know, Peter Yoder was talking about. Um, with the church and its discussions of morality uh, several weeks ago. Yeah, no, I, I think that that's, that's a very good point. I, I, I think that I tend to probably fall into that camp uh, when I see what's going on. I think another interesting argument that people make is sort of that, you know, this is uh, what we're seeing played out is a manifestation of radical individualism, that the seeds of what we're experiencing now were present at the founding. This is sort of the Patrick Deneen, why liberalism failed argument. And so it borrows a lot from what you're saying, right? Which is that there has to be something that is animating the the culture. Uh, And for for a long time, that was Judeo-Christian values, but now it's secular liberalism. But secular liberalism is really a manifestation of radical individualism, right? Of, Of freeing the individual from any institution or anything that would tie it to um, a larger meta narrative or system that's outside what you feel, what you think and how you interpret events. Um, What do you think about the kind of uh, co-rising of identity politics though? How does that work out? How does, how do you get this rise of individualism and this rise of identity politics at the same time? Tune in next week when I have no idea. Like that's, (laughs) That's a really good question. I, I think a lot of it probably is, you know, when you divorce yourself from a institution that gives you higher meaning. So, you know, beyond yourself. So for the church, it's, it's obviously being united in the body of Christ. You know, you're finding your identity in those things. If you're finding your identity purely on yourself, I mean, you're going to look for things that, that do give you that identity. For a lot of people, that's going to be uh, either their race their class, their socioeconomic class. I mean, these, these are things that people find 
rootedness in. And it, it sort of, it sort of betrays the, the axiom of radical individualism, right? Which is that people inherently want to be in community. The question is, you know, where do you find yourself? Uh, and I think for a lot of people who sort of subscribe to identity politics, um, they're looking for that. And so they turn inward uh, and they, they find things to, find, to give them meaning. And these can all be true. And right, like th that's not necessarily to say that it's, it's imaginative, right? There, there is sort of a shared history of oppression and uh, injustice, you know, against black Americans. It makes sense why, you know, there would be uh, sort of a shared identity in that. Yeah, I'm reading this History of the American West right now by a professor at UT called Dreams of El Dorado. And he talks about the West. And one of the things that has dominated the history of the West is this idea of the, the American individual going out on their own. And he said, what's interesting is that that rarely ever happened. You never had an individual go off into the West on their own. If they did, they would die quickly. There may have been people who were more seasoned who would be leaders and kind of scout out and then come back. But people basically never went out far into the West on their own individuals. They always went as communities. They had to, to survive. They had to be a part of a tribe. And with that, he says, also is there was this big fear of federal government. Hey, don't, don't tell me what to do. I'm an American. I'm going to go for the West. And he's like, the truth about that is the West was settled. Why? Because of the Louisiana Purchase and because Thomas Jefferson, in a way that was somewhat contradictory to his strict constitutionalism, led him to say, hey, we're going to go West. So these ideas, you know, you were talking a second ago about the contradiction of identity politics and individualism. Sometimes these paradoxes just rise together. And, and sometimes it's the case of like, look, there's individual and community at the same time. Uh, and then there's also at the same time, this pioneering spirit and the need for government to, to support certain causes, which I think leads to the other question I have for you is there's a quote, um, Tocqueville makes the observation that in contrast to the peoples of Paris and Berlin, Americans seek to solve things on their own, by and large. They don't immediately run to the federal government over things. In our culture today, it seems that there is a stepping over the neighbor and a running either to like litigation against someone or appealing to the national government for something, but not an intimate resolving between two parties close at hand, which I was going to say, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of wisdom in Jesus saying, Hey, try to resolve this with your brother before you get to the courts. Right. There's a headache you can save. Um, like how do we decide what can and can't be resolved at the federal level? Yeah. Like, so, I mean, a huge part of that question I feel like has to be answered by political philosophy, which I don't feel equipped to answer, but I think as a, as a Christian, uh, a point of, I guess, application or sort of how I envision this question, because it's a, it's a very good question. I think it really, it depends on how do you as a Christian engage with politics, which is a question that if you've listened to this show, know that we return to almost every episode. I mean, it is, it is sort of the defining question of the, of the show. And I, I think one thing we mentioned in the last episode that we've sort of been formulating on our own and, and with each other, you know, offline, is this a time where Christians are rethinking about how do we engage with politics? Because I think if you if you look at the past few decades, you've seen a, a a way of engaging with politics that you know we've sort of realized in the last couple of weeks has failed. Um, I mean that's that's how I would paint it. You know, there's no referencing. I'm talking sort of of the the moral majority, sort of the the moral crusading that happened um, that really sort of became you know came alive, if you will, in sort of the Reagan era. 
where so, sort of social conservatives, religious conservatives, evangelicals, which, you know, maybe that term means more back then than it does now, really sort of made a political deal with economic conservatives or Cold War hawks to sort of create a political majority that, you know, would get them the things that they wanted. Um, and I think you've seen that ultimately fail. And a big part of that calculus was, hey, we're going to align ourselves with people that may not agree with everything that we stand for religion-wise um, or faith-wise. And we're also going to go about it in a way that suggests there's an enemy to fight and not a culture to win. You know, this is sort of the, what Mako talk about, talked about on one of our shows about the difference between culture war and culture care. And and the way that you engage with those, those things. I think Christians for a long time have uh, either purposely, or I would even argue subconsciously have been in, engaged in culture war instead of culture care. And I think now that we were promised the courts and that didn't happen, it's caused for sort of a step back and say, you know, what are we doing here? How do we engage with politics? And the way that you engage with politics that more Christians are finding is that it's going to be way more neighborly and way less government oriented. Um, now that's going to be tricky, especially if you are, you know, your dealings are with folks who don't subscribe to that, you know, who do want to take everything to court, who do believe um, in, in sort of that, uh, that path. But I see it way more as churches, uh, ministries, uh, organizations with Christian leanings are going to have to be way more thoughtful about how are we interacting with our local community? You know, how are we, you know, what's our face towards them? How are we helping them? How are we serving them? How are we loving them? Um, and it's going to be a really incremental step-by-step process rather than sort of a total war. You mentioned this last week, the importance of being able to articulate not just what is the biblical vision for a healthy marriage, for a healthy neighborhood, for families, but why God has set things up that way. Why God looks desires a society that is just, that is caring, um, that does allow freedom uh, and expression and curiosity and engagement and these things. I think where I get a little concerned is there has been a lot of abandonment of doctrine for relevance. And there has been this, this just chasing after culture in order to be culturally relevant rather than first looking at doctrine, allowing that to, and how we interpret culture. We, we sometimes can like, I think, talk about culture as something we can use and manipulate rather than something that we're swimming in as well. And that's shaping us. Look, look at how that's manifested itself, even in the church. I mean, we, we talk about sort of the secular left treating religion as, or treating politics as religion. I mean, you could say the same thing about conservative evangelical church. And how did it begin? Well, it really began, I think, with what you're talking about, which was, you know, a a pursuit of relevance. Well, what was, what was the relevant message that the church could say? Well, it's all about personal relationship. It's about personal salvation. It's about your personal standing, your personal, and, and it's tricky, right? Because in a sense, yes, that is true. Like the gospel is that Jesus died for you to save you from your sins, right? Like that is true. However, especially as folks like us would say in our more reformed tradition, there's much more to that, right? And 
It's yeah. about being an individual within a, the context of the body it's of, of Christ. It's about participating with other believers. And there's, there's much more of about, you know, God created all everything and he's restoring everything, right? It, there's sort of that element. There can almost be this view that the church and gathering on Sunday is like almost an ad hoc uh, convenience decision. Well, we meet on Sunday because it's the last day of the weekend. It's a great way to start the week. And we gather together as people. Why? Because it's a great way for our plausibility structures to be reinforced. Well, no. Well, that happens, I guess. But the reason for that is because that's what our scripture teaches. uh, And that's what our doctrine encourages and what we know to be true. And unless we have this buttressing doctrine, this robust reformed uh, doctrine, the personal elements of our faith become individual elements of faith. And those are very different. Um, Not that the individual doesn't exist, because there's actually a strong case that the individual is created through the church. And and I I think that, that can be made. But it's also true that like, personal experience with Jesus Christ is is meant to be developed and flourished in community with other believers. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it makes you realize that as you find your identity within a, within a community of believers placed in a particular context, sort of a, a calling, if you will, you realize that, that Christians can actually have much more nuanced, dare I say, diverse approach to politics. Um, because the way that you s- interact with your, your culture and your context is going to change depending on, depending on where you are, um, depending on what you do, depending on who your neighbors are. So something that the, the evangelical church, a sort of political movement, has done for a long time is it sort of painted, painted the parameters and said, you know, this is sort of universal. This is what it, everything is like. And the reality is that it's just so much more nuanced than that, right? Like, how else can you account for the fact that the pro-life legislation that was just actually argued in the Supreme Court was brought up and defended by Democrats in a Southern state? I mean, like that just does not fit with the sort of the narrative that's, that's been told to Christians for so long. And you, you sort of realize that actually things are way more nuanced. I think that gives me a lot of reason for hope. Ooh, no. <laughs> uh, I have to be hopeful. I'm called to be hopeful. Okay, Will? So. Yeah, I must have missed that note in my seminary class. <laughs> no, we are called to be hopeful. You're 100% right. And we're called to, I mean, even hope against hope sometimes for what we believe and what we know to be true. And I guess one thing I wanted to ask is what we see, and this happens on both sides, one side I'm more comfortable with, but the idea of, hey, this was a big victory for our cause. What just happened? Let's celebrate it and join us next week for a discussion on the next step in our fight. Now, if it's pro-life, like I'm really great with that. I think that's really good. I would love to see the next step of if this decision had gone the other way in the Supreme Court, next step of how do we make it such a way that the only abortions that are allowed are with the life of the mother is at peril. Like how do we get somewhere like that? Now, if it's on the other side and it's saying, hey, we just t- tore down the statue and join us for the next step in the fight. I'm like, whoa, <laughs> what, what are you doing there? And I wonder, like, is that an inconsistency on my part that I feel that way? Am I wrong to feel that way? Uh, and I guess this is, you know, the, kind of the religious language. What's the telos? What's the end goal? What's the purpose of all of this? And I think both sides would say human flourishing and a thriving society. What we as Christians have to do is to search the scriptures 
and to see, see God's word for what he tells us that looks like. Um, and we have to guard against a lot of temptations to borrow and to be, I guess, seduced maybe by, by false idols. It also makes me uh, mindful of, I think we talked about it last week too, the Al Walters book, Creation Regained. He has a good point about, you know, reformed Christians are about reformation. We're not about revolution. And so I think there's something to be said about Christians can be comfortable with sort of the idea of incrementalism and recognizing that, you know, after something, after sort of a victory, you know, in quotes, if you want to call it that, um, then, you know, that's, that's a proper time to sort of start figuring out what the next, what the next way to further that goal is. But I, I think you're, you're absolutely right in talking about, well, what is the telos? What's the end? And eventually, to me, a lot of it comes down to, at the end of the day, we're going to have to argue or have a debate about what is fundamental reality? What is objective truth? I'm just always going to be skeptical of anything that is, hey, we need to continue to chip away at laws so that we can free the autonomous self to realize their own personal reality. I mean, I'm just, I'm just always going to be skeptical of that message. Jamie Smith has a line in his new book, On the Road with St. Augustine, where he talks about basically the charity of boundaries. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, and the freedom that we desire in that. And I think I, I'm comfortable saying that. And then I'm also comfortable saying that for the political or the cultural debates going on that I'm, I'm sort of more supportive of, like the pro-life movement, I'm also comfortable in saying, hey, how are we talking about this thing? How are we discussing it. You know, if, if the argument is always framed and sort of how do we destroy this thing? Real Ben Shapiro stuff. Yeah. I'm just always going to, I, that to me sounds too culture war. I want to be more in the culture care business. I want to be, I want to be talking about how do we, uh, my wife and I went to a, a dinner one time for a pro-life clinic here in the Northern Virginia area. And the, the talk was, what does it mean to be pro-abundant life? And sort of the, the main speaker for that night was about, you know, how do we talk about this issue in light of all life being sacred? And, you know, a lot of that is you're going to find you're, you're going to have overlaps with criminal justice reform. You're going to be overlaps with racial reconciliation, but, you know, all these kind of things. And so I, I would like to see uh, when we talk about these sort of issues, you know, where there is fundamental arguments about objective truth and, and what, is, what is real and what's not, um, I still would like to see an argument from, from my side, if you will about how do we see the, the other side as a mission field to be won over and not an enemy to, to, to vanquish. Um, and that's, that's how I'm always going to prefer it. So if you're framing your thing as the next fight in destroy, you know, owning and l- triggering the libs, I'm just going to be left. I'm going to be less <laughs> on your side. And that's just kind of how I tend to be. And I, I don't know if that's a point of application of Christian faith, but I think it is a more healthy way of doing politics. Yes, it is. And recognizing that we're, not doing politics in an echo chamber, but politics with neighbors. You mentioned that idea of destroy the opponents and to tie it back to Mako as he's been so helpful. uh, It's not generative. There's nothing generative in that approach. And I think what we're looking for is something that is, that is able to replicate itself further down the road. Yeah. And you know, all that's to say that the Christians aren't in the destroy evil business. I mean, like we should, we should be overcoming evil. There's no doubt about it. But if you, if that's your mentality, but it's divorced from hate the sin, love, love the sinner. Like you're, you're in a whole mess of muddy waters. Like 
those two things have to be paired together. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the reality is that even, even our political opponents uh, on issues that we care extremely about that are issues literally of life and death, we still have to have a spirit of forgiveness and we have to have a spirit of reconciliation. That's just who we are. And, you know, that's uncomfortable, you know, nine times out of a, nine times out of 10, but it's just something we have to remember. Yeah. Robert, I love that. I think that's a really great place for us to land this plane for this week. We'll pick it back up next week and uh, continue this conversation as it has continued to evolve around us and change. So thank you so much for tuning in and being with us. I'm Will Stockdale. You can follow me on Twitter at, at Stockdale Will and Robert Hassler at RD Hassler. Again, we're a Ministry of Ministry to State and looking forward to seeing you next week.